a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Nathan Romus with you. Today, we are going to be focused on a lot of things RCMP, uh, some big talk on federal versus contract policing, uh, and some of the work done by the National Police Federation. For that, I have returning guest, President Brian Sove from the NPF. I think this is your third time, maybe fourth time on here. Um, and I also got newly to the pro- uh, program, Vice President, or one of the Vice Presidents, Dennis Miller here. So welcome to uh, Brian and Dennis. Thanks for having us, Nathan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you guys too. Uh, hopefully you got a break over the holidays. Do you guys get a break at all? Uh, you know, the, 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 the gas pedal gets pulled off Lightly. a little bit. <laughs> I was kind of like coasting down a hill for uh, a week or so. But yeah. not necessarily a bridge. Yeah, I imagine it's policing, right? Nothing ever stops. We're the ones who keep going. So um, I wanted to kind of start by giving Dennis kind of the opportunity to just talk a bit about himself, introduce himself, maybe tell us how you got into policing and where you've been through your career. If you can uh, give us some of the background. Awesome. Uh, thanks. Uh, Dennis Miller. Uh, I am one of the three vice presidents for the National Police uh, I joined uh, the RCMP back in 1993 uh, after having grown up in an RCMP uh, family. My father was a police officer with the RCMP, uh, served 35 years. Um, after completing my time in depot, I was posted to uh, Brunswick, North Shore, New Brunswick, to a small town called Trackney, where I performed our duty operations. Uh, and then eventually transferred to Petakodiak, also in New Brunswick, just outside of Moncton. Uh, I performed those duties uh, up until approximately 2003 when I was transferred to uh, Ottawa area. Um, during my duties in uh, New Brunswick, uh, I was also heavily involved in the uh, tactical unit at the time, uh, or what was referred to as the attack troop or the riot suppression. Uh, unit or dealing with protesters. Uh, I was chemically weapon trained uh, part of the gas unit on that. And uh, I was ground search and rescue coordinator as well, uh, dealing with several major tenure there. Uh, came to Ottawa and I joined uh, General Duty Protective Policing, which was previously known as the Embassy Patrol and Protective Directorate. Uh, garnered uh, a lot of experience there uh, and uh, VIP, uh, bodyguard trained, armored limo trained, site uh, security trained. Uh, spent about three, four years doing uh, those uh, type of duties. Then I transferred to uh, counterfeit section in Ottawa. And from counterfeit section, I then went to financial integrity and eventually to what now is known as SII, which is serious national investigation, doing a lot of high level investigation before uh, entering the labor uh, side of things and becoming staff relations representative. Uh, When that program was dissolved, I then, Took over, uh, it was shortly, uh, it wasn't shortly after, but it was after the uh, incident we had at Permanent Hill in relation to the shooting, over uh, coordinating all field training for cadets that were coming out of depot to provide enhanced security at Permanent Hill. Okay. Uh, so we were taking several cadets at that time uh, as a division here, and uh, I was ensuring that they were getting proper and adequate training that matched up with what our members were receiving contract, uh, eventually leading into the NPF and to eventual election and my role that I'm currently in now. Uh, this role, my uh, predominant 
area of work and expertise is in, I'm one of the co-chairs and negotiators for collective bargaining. Ah, okay. So you're the one who gets everybody the, the big dollars. So people are going to be interested in you. <laughs> I try to get them as much as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's, uh, man, that's quite the career. Uh, you said you were doing embassy work. So you're patrolling the embassies. Did you get to meet anybody, uh, anybody in particular, any unique people there? Well, I uh, protected uh, at the time, uh, the, uh, on several occasions, I protected the uh, U.S. ambassador to Canada mm, okay. and provided close protection to them. But uh, when doing the embassy patrols, uh, you know, the contact with them was in relation to any type of incident or less. But because of my VIP training and my bodyguard training and, and et cetera, I was uh, often used to support VIP uh, services. So I got to meet some of the ambassadors at the time back in the early. Very cool. Some, some of the prime ministers. Yeah. Well, um, that's the one thing uh, uh, maybe, well, I went from the RCMP over to the municipal side and I do miss the the opportunity, I guess you could call it, to go to so much like these vast array of jobs, right? And right across Canada, it's one of the coolest parts about the RCMP. Um, but I guess it kind of fits right in with the discussion we have today because you guys have both been to a number of units, uh, a number of provinces between the two of you. Um, just kind of talking about that federal versus contract policing. Maybe we'll kind of start there with the, uh, some of the discussion um, and just talk about, uh, well, actually there was uh, an article and I couldn't find it and I meant to send it in the emails uh, sent to you guys earlier, but there was some talk I saw in an article about like a National Guard type service in Canada. I was wondering, has that ever come up? And it, it was just in response to wildfires and I know um, the RCMP is big role to play in the community safety and getting people in and out of places. Um, has that ever come up like a national guard type service? Well, theoretically, uh, you know, the landscape in Canada of, uh, the armed forces, you know, obviously we've got there, there are four branches to our armed forces. The RCMP is the fourth branch, right? We've got the air force, we've got the army, we've got the Navy, and then the RCMP is actually the fourth branch of Canada's military. So we are really, you know, if you will, National Guard because we're deployable to a lot of these things already in Canada. And people do forget that there are four branches to Canada's military mm. and Canada's armed forces. Uh, and we are, um, it's the proper term, it's not battalion, we are a regiment um, within the Canadian Armed Forces, hence why we have the Guidon, hence why. Uh, were defined as veterans under the Pension Act and, and covered under Veterans Affairs Canada. So, yeah, I think there's been some discussion about, you know, should Canada develop, um, you know, a National Guard or something for peacekeeping and, and uh, um, um, natural disasters like wildfire responses and stuff like that. However, uh, we already do have that. And in, in peacetime, obviously, you can rely on uh, the Canadian Armed Forces to help with uh, with those events uh, and requests can be made by premiers for uh, the Minister of National Defence to deploy reservists and regular forces to assist. Um, and then, you know, we we already do most of that mainly from our uh, capacity to bring in people from everywhere. You know, whether it's Yellowknife. Um, with their wildfire evacuations and bringing in police officers from Alberta and Saskatchewan to the evacuation and security of the community while it's evacuated, or whether it's, uh, you know, when earlier last year, obviously Edson in Alberta was having yeah. some wicked wildfires and they had to evacuate the community. So bringing in uh, members from K Division or uh, Calgary, uh, in and around Calgary, major crimes unit and stuff like that to assist and, and spell off those who are first responders in the community who are also uh, evacuating with their families is, uh, you know, one of the advantages to uh, the RCMP itself in its present form. Yeah, well, and I'm wondering, like, what's, is this, is this like a passing fad? With everybody kind of, I don't know if it's um, 
that people have an issue with RCMP in particular. But if you had like a National Guard service, you know, that takes away some aspect of what the military themselves might be doing in response. It also takes away from the RCMP. But then you t- look at like provincial policing, everybody's talking about that. Um, some municipal policing is changing between Surrey and Grand Prairie, which is what's the big push right now to um, kind of maybe pare down what the RCMP is doing? Um, you know, is, is there any kind of specific reason or do you think people are, uh, is this a political thing? Is this just like, uh, like I was saying earlier, a, a fad? I don't know if that'd be a good term to use, but kind of what's, what's the motivation? I can, jump in. I can jump in, Nathan. Like, I think, I think the situation is that I think I know which article you're referring to. It actually came from Canadian forces. I think the comment was made by one of their higher level individuals. Uh, I don't know if it was before Parliament or to, to directly to the press. I think it was in relation to the fact of the resources that are being drawn on them to deal or assist in some of these who are having some capacity issues. With it's, it, I don't think it's any different for the RCMP. We recognize that these situations happen. We're able to deploy the resources to deal with the situation as they occur. Uh, I think it's just uh, a capacity issue in the sense that uh, this summer, uh, unlike other summers, happened to be one that uh, had multiple multiple, mm, yeah. multiple fires right across the country. And uh, you had somebody you know, tapping on the shoulder to try and get resources out to deal with this. I think there's always going to be a component with regards to the RCMP and our involvement from a public safety perspective, no offense or buts, whether it's evacuations and such. Uh, I think uh, the feel that I got off that article, both on page with the same article here, was using the Canadian Armed Forces in relation to firefighting uh, and how that was causing a strain on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes me wonder too, like if, if you took the job away from one service or another, you're still looking for, the, I guess, the same amount of people. So um, whether the RCMP does it or the forces does it or some new National Guard type thing, um, it's still the same issue of recruiting and finding the bodies to do it, which seems like an issue for pretty much everybody everywhere right now, right from service industries and restaurants uh, right up through policing. So I just thought it was kind of a a different idea. The first time I'd ever heard of it, and I couldn't for the life of me find the article again. So I just thought, oh, I'll ask about that. Um, when we're talking about the federal and uh, contract policing, one of the things I was wondering is, does one have a, uh, a a priority over the other? Like, does one can one cannibalize the other? Does it does it take precedent over um, you know each other? Does one have a priority? in there or is it uh are they kind of mutually exclusive and they're not drawing off each other uh well i mean i dennis can chime in if he wants i think i think from our perspective at least what we see um dealing with provincial municipal and federal governments is uh and if you can go back to uh, all the successive budget asks that the npf has made contracting partners provinces as well as the federal government we've been consistently asking for a sustained funding commitment by public safety canada and the government of canada to ensure that the rcmp can meet its mandate with the human resources required uh, and i think what we've seen over the past 15 years is successive federal governments have ignored the need to um, to fund appropriately so that the RCMP can staff appropriately. And, you know, in policing, we're obviously really familiar with the phrase, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. So planning for the worst would mean having a fully resourced RCMP that grows with the population and the mandate that is given, federal contract and specialized policing services. I think successive federal governments have just hoped for the best. Um, and, and, you know, we saw that in, um, whether it's the mass casualty event in Portland, we saw that in um, the <coughs> Parliament Hill shootings where you 
all of a sudden have an incident where you need this massive response and successive governments, whether they are federal or provincial or municipal, have allowed their resources to uh, dwindle because they have gotten into this um, mindset of complacency. Well, it can never happen here. Yeah. Uh, and then you have an event and all of a sudden, holy crap, uh, we should have, we should have, and we will, and off you go. So that's why we're, we've been pushing, uh, you know, recruiting, recruiting, recruiting from the RCMP's perspective, streamline that process. We've got a great contract. We've got a lot of benefits. There's lots of opportunities. And also pushing the feds and the provinces to sit back and say, you know, you guys need to do your part to uh, improve and make a sustained commitment to your federal police service so that, yes, your federal policing and your contract policing do not end up cannibalizing one another for the limited bodies that we have because mm. you put us in the situation. Right? You can't hire if there's no money to pay people. Right? Yeah. So you got to get the money to pay people and then you can go on a sustained recruitment. And it's got something to add there. Yeah, I, th I, I think the only thing that I'd say there, Nathan, is that there's been the historical uh, issues with being properly resources, resourced and funded, whether it be on the federal side or the contract side, and RCMP senior management not standing up saying, well, if you're going to provide us with this new mandate, we need this new money and new resources first before we get it going uh -huh. versus, you know, effectively the cart ahead of the horse in the sense that uh, they'll, they'll start whatever the new mandate might be without being resourced and funded for it because it's the flavor of the day effectively. Yeah. Uh, and that, and, and, and to your question, uh, you know, I don't think there's a cannibalization but I think there's always a risk assessment of what the situation might be as to whether resources, whether contract or federal, need to be redistributed in relation to an ongoing event or situation. Hmm. So if, if you have you, if you have a major event that's potential life threatening or uh, of potential um, consequence to the Canadian landscape. Well, then maybe federal will draw additional resources from contract. But if you have a contract situation whereby life is threatened as well, you may see those same federal resources now be re redeployed or accessed in order to deal with that situation in a given province in a contract situation. I guess, yeah, and I guess my one part of the question would be, is that a good model, like that we have people kind of switching between the two roles? Um, and maybe, it, you know, from your own experiences, because you've both worked in a number of areas, should we have, you know, maybe generalists to a sense, or should people really be uh, specialized in the areas that they work in? And if we need more people in, say, frontline policing, we just recruit for frontline policing. Maybe it's kind of along the lines of, like, the, the new federal positions, the direct entry positions. Like, we're just, we're bringing you in for this specific thing. But does that still leave them open to all of a sudden they could be on the front lines at some point? Well, I think I think one of the so the trend globally is to actually move towards uh, a similar policing model that the RCMP offers, right? You know, in Denmark, one police service for the entire country where they do it all. Finland, one police service. Most recent one is Scotland over the last. Uh, 15, okay. 10 years, they have moved from nine to to, to one. Uh, obviously, smaller geographic areas, uh, smaller population bases, and such. So, so, uh, and you know, in Scotland, for example, I think in the last five years they've had one hmm. uh, with this new Scottish police uh, model because they can just basically pick up a bunch of resources and front end load whatever investigation wherever it be or the North or Glasgow or um, So smaller scale from what the RCMP offers nationally, but if you think from just Alberta, for example, right, you know, the, the uh, Coots border protest is 
shining example yeah. where it wasn't just the members from Milk River who were deployed to work on that protest. You actually had uh, members from British Columbia and Saskatchewan, as well as Ottawa here, who were deployed to relieve and provide sustained um, uh, duties at the Coos border protest. At the same time, you know, your major crimes uh, teams involved, you know, working the crowd and ultimately finding out what they they found out for the, the threats against the members and the armed persons and their their uh, theories or what they were going to do. Um, so I think in the end, you know, the, the big discussion has to happen about whether it's, uh, you know, Edmonton City Police Service or Calgary or Vancouver about police resource methodology and, you know, what does our community want mm. from our police service, whether it's the RCMP and K Division or Alberta, um, and how quickly do we want someone to come to a 911 call, whether it's a priority one or a priority four. Um, and then once we've landed on that, then, okay, this is the number of bodies it's going to take. And can you do it with the model that the RCMP provides? I think you can because of the strategic placement of specialized units, air services, underwater recovery, and all of those things that can be like, which are usually after the fact. Dennis, thoughts? I, I, think, I think, you know, if you're looking at the specialist versus generalist, I think the fact of one of the greatest strengths of the RCMP, and we should be touting this organization, one of the best, if not the best out there, the fact that everybody has a base generalist yeah, uh, to some extent. And exactly Brian's point, you can react to an expanding or an actual major event. So whether it's a planned major event or an, it's something that's occurring in the moment, uh, you can expand using those generalists, and those generalists in almost every capacity uh, have become specialists. So those specialists still have that base training and base background in uh, dealing with the situation. So whether you're pulling somebody out of Toronto who's on a source development unit, uh, if, if the need arises, Manitoba, to have them in relation to XYZ event, whatever it might be, they can be pulled and used at that event, even though they're not dealing with their actual specialty. But at the same time, too, they have that specialty available to them, should that be required someplace else. You go down the road of only a specialist type of training, your ability to mobilize those individuals becomes very limited very quickly. Yeah. And uh, to that point, you know, we saw it here, you know, Brian referenced Coots, I'll reference, uh, you know, the occupation that we had in, in relation to Ottawa. Uh, you had multiple other agencies have very good partnerships with that were unable to get the resources nece necessary. Now, some of them, yes, they were required specialties, special specialized training, but the majority of what they needed were generalists on the ground in order to provide them the resources necessary to deal with the occupation because uh, they were simply outnumbered. And they couldn't even do that or draw from that uh, the sufficient numbers from Ontario alone. So, you know, the request obviously came into us to supplement that. Yeah. And we do it based on our, 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 our current resourcing geography and our geography across the country. Yeah. So one of the challenges, and, uh, you mentioned the federal direct entry program which is you know, really on, on pause now. Uh, one of the challenges that we had with that, which was part of the evidence and the testimony at the Ontario Labour Practice Hearing, such that almost all inquiries, it's regardless of uniform strike or shoulder flash, almost all inquiries into a response talk about and make recommendations for increased and better more consistent training of police officers in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether that's from a general duty uniform capacity to a major crime office of investigative standards and practices to an exhibit custodian to whatever, 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 right? Almost 
every inquiry, including the mass casualty uh, event repeat, they spoke about uh, an improvement in increased training. So when they had the federal direct entry side, we saw it as actually contravening all of the recommendations of those inquiries because you were making new police officers in the RCMP or it didn't matter the agency with a completely different training standard. Yeah. You didn't have the same base. You didn't have the same ability. You didn't have the same knowledge. So that was one of our huge objections to that. And it came out in hearing. Um, and, you know, we're still, the RCMP's backed off and we're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like in the future. But to have that generalist base and improve what that looks like for policing in Canada, I think is something that everybody should be striving for. And all strive for it to be better. Yeah. And training is the first thing that goes when funding dries up, right? So yeah. we need to really. Uh, so do you foresee, with all knowledge you both have, do you foresee the the whole argument of you know FBI type service in Canada? Is that something that is happening in the near future or not? Is because it, it seems like that's kind of the push right now. So what's kind of your take? I'm going to show my age here. Uh, but uh, the FBI policing model has been something that's been bantered by our CMP senior management since, mm -hmm. uh, and has never taken to fruition because it, it does not serve, I believe, uh, the needs of the Canadian citizens, not serve the needs of the current government. It does not serve... Uh, the population and how the RCMP is currently providing service to Canadians well. Uh, so I would say, in, in, in my humble opinion, it's, it's obviously been put some, something that's been put out there by the media yeah, uh, and, and, and probably discussed behind closed doors, but it's more rumor than anything else. Uh, it is not something that's happening. Our geography does not lend to it. Our needs as a Canadian, uh, you know, coast-to-coast -coast police force uh, don't blend with it well. Uh, what is needed from us, uh, from a federal government mandate, doesn't match up to what the uh, is the expectations of the FBI. And again, we are Canada. We are not the United States. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what they need there and what we need here are not necessarily. Usually when, when, when I'm asked that question, you know, it's, it's like, well, let's actually quantify this. You know, if we're going to compare south of the border to north of the border, right? You actually, you can't just say FBI, right? You have to say FBI, DEA, ATF, Homeland Security, yeah. Secret Service, United States Marshals, because the RCMP right now does all of that. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't just create an FBI of the north. We would actually probably be creating six or seven different federal agencies that have different mandates. And um, as much as I love our colleagues to the South, I do know that they envy the way the RCMP operates with its federal mandate in Canada, because we have that internal collaboration and cooperation through one house, one agency, one partnership, one organization that shares information about national security, about commercial crime, about uh, witness protection about all that great stuff under one umbrella versus having seven different commissioners, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> with seven different agencies, with seven different budget acts, with seven different mandates. So it, it, it becomes this big schmozzle about, you know, how do we look at it or, or, and, and, and such. So I think, um, yeah, I, I guess one of the things I wanted to pick up on was, I don't. I think there definitely needs to be a very clear definition of like what the public wants, and and to that extent, I guess what the politicians are going to say that people want. Um, very clear and defined roles of the police, of law enforcement in Canada, and then what each agency does. I mean, we even see that in Edmonton, where there's always the debates about you know should police be going to mental health calls, and I know that's come up with the RCMP too. And it's like, well, tell us what you want. Right. And if you don't want us going, tell us you don't change the policy, change the laws, whatever you want to do, because that's all we can enforce. Um, I think what I gather is 
know, the, the U.S. has something like 18,000 services. Actually, it was a good uh, article and discussion I had with Kevin Sear from your ERT team in the lower mainland. Um, who knew a tactical guy could write academic papers? <laughs> but he, uh, he had a really excellent paper on the militarization of police. And it just talked about the fragmentation across the U.S. They have something like 18,000 services. In Canada, we have like 180. So definitely that information sharing within uh, uh, the service from all the coasts is like that, that I see the benefit of that. The one thing I think where people might question it is if, if resources are being directed from one uh, function to another. So when we talk about the national security aspect, so there's a lot of stuff on um, foreign influence uh, in elections and threats to MPs, to uh, transnational crime, interprovincial crime. The, and I think one of the points of pride for the RCMP is they're the only service in Canada who can deal with that stuff. Nobody else can. So if they're not looking at it, if they're, you know, if we have $100 and I'm sending 10 or $12 of that to the, the federal policing side to deal with these massive or crime groups, you know, not the, you know, the other 90 cents is going off to frontline policing are we allocating the resources properly? So I just don't know if, you know, splitting into more organizations is a better idea. Maybe it's just, we need to say, hey, RCMP, you do frontline policing in these certain places, but we want, you know, 80 cents of every dollar going to federal police. So is it is it more just an, a resource allocation issue? Is it more a... Uh, changing of the names and creating a new organization. Do we need that? Uh, I see the benefits and uh, negatives to both. So uh, I just, I think, I don't know if we'd ever get a clear answer from politicians because whoever makes the hard line decision is going to own that. And that's not really what they do. <laughs> so. No, and I think it good to me, to me, it, um, it, everything comes down to recruiting and resourcing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, there's a white paper um, done by the Senate probably back in 2012. Um, uh, it's called Towards a Red Surge Revival. And they talked about, at the, so at the time, the RCP was about 17,000 members, 18,000 members. They talked about to do, to accomplish the mandate that has been given, you know, federal uh, contract as well as specialized police services. So 12 years ago, we're talking now, or even 13, that the RCMP needed 5,000 more cops. Decade forward, population has now eclipsed 40 million, um, and we're up to, I think, we're authorized drinks, 1,000, but you know, on the ground, we're probably at about 20. Um, so do we still need four or 5,000 more with population growth? And it's, it's all about that, it's a sustained commitment from all the governments that utilize the RCMP, whether it be federal, all the way down to municipal, that, we need to fund and have the ability to fill those seats. So is that about, is, would that come down to like a funding model? Because this is something that our chief of police was um, at city council about. So having that predictability, and I think it gives them four or five years out, like, hey, this is where we're going to be. Was that kind of what you're talking about? I think, yeah, 100%. I think not only looking at that is, is looking at some certainty with, with the expectations, like you, you said earlier, uh, expectations of government. What What is the expectation of the populace? What's the expectations of government? It's nice to throw a new mandate out there. The problem that we've had, uh, at least from what I've seen during my, my time in Ottawa, is mandate is changing uh, almost every two to three years. Mm -hmm. And you as, you know, whether it's the RCMP and the commissioner or whether it's the chief of police in Edmonton, if your mandate's changing every two to three years, you're having to realign your resources, retrain your resources, then then re uh, te technically task them to do whatever the new mandate is. Yeah, and that's been problematic here with with change in government, change in direction, as well as you know uh, general the general population putting pressure on the government. So if day one uh, your your mandate is the you know 
influx of drugs across the Canadian American border. But then two years later, and you put all your resources and all your money into that and training people and get ready to do that. And then two years later, that's no longer your mandate. Your mandate is now worrying about cybercrime. Well, now you have to retrain those people and put them onto a new task. Mm-hmm. I think that's continually an issue for the RCMP to exactly the point that Brian's bringing up here is identified in 2012, we were four to 5,000 short. Well, if you're up to full speed and you have your full number of resources allocated and in those chairs doing the job, changing a mandate for one group is not a big ripple in the water. But if you're changing the mandate for one group when you're four or 5,000 bodies short, now it's going to have a definite ripple effect on other units and what they're doing and how they're going to do things as well. Yeah. And yeah, I think you make a really good point. I guess the word would be consistency. You know, we're, you, you're searching for some consistency, whether that's talking about dollars or the mandates. Um, I, for myself, and I don't know why, <laughs> does, you know, the, the political types don't just say, you deal with criminal stuff. Basic, you just deal with criminal stuff. We'll start worrying about a bunch of other things after that. But you know, enforce drug laws, enforce gun laws, um, take care of all the assaults and different things. Just make it consistent, and it's like that's where your dollar should be going. And then all the other things about um, I don't know tents and whatever else people want to complain about in, in the communities. We'll get to that with peace officers, or there's other things they could do. But um, I think it'd be nice if law enforcement had more of that focus. Um, and like you're saying, the consistency, um, do you, you were saying there, Brian, about the, the direct federal positions being kind of on pause. And is that just for the one uh, issue that you mentioned, or is there anything else to that? Like all it's all ceased right now. It is all ceased. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, uh, well, we we serve. We're we're actually uh, actively in bargaining. Our contract expired in March, so we were in uh, what's called the statutory freeze. They can't change terms and conditions of employment until we've ratified a new contract. And the the way this program started was um, um, basically an unfair labor practice by the employer to try and create a. A, a newer category of police officer within the RCMP with different training, different benefits, different terms and conditions of employment, not having thought through what it might look like in the collective agreement. So we filed that complaint with the Labor Board. Uh, the hearing was middle of November, um, and ultimately they ruled uh, early December that yes, the RCMP did violate it, the program is shut down. Uh, until we can ratify a new collective agreement and then we'll work together to figure out what that program looks like. So the direct entry spots, they were going to be different benefits. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know about different benefits. Uh, I mean, same pension plan, but basically, for example, they would come in day one as a salaried member versus a cadet going to depot. Oh, okay. It's on. Uh, you know, they would, they, they, they would come in with, so it, it was just a whole sh- also of stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, that really that, that, that we weren't consulted on. And, you know, the employer can do those things while we're in bargaining if we are engaged and if we consent to the changes, but none of that was done. So it was uh, an, an unfortunate circumstance because I think from our perspective in the RCP and the commissioner's perspective, we want the same thing. More members is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, we agree that, you know, uh, federal needs a bit more focus and we need to get more members in federal policing. How do we do that and help us help you get there is kind of where we're, we're, we're looking at. So it was just uh, an unfortunate growing pains, I think, with uh, an organization that's still dealing with a new union and, a, and, a, and an organized labor world uh, that they went off on this tangent and brought them back now, hopefully, and we can work together on what it might look like in the future. Well, having been on our association, uh, and they've been around a long time, those pains don't go away. <laughs> I know they still have the arguments with the uh, the employer for the exact same kind of things. So, um, yeah, well, you know, maybe uh, we'll get on to discussion just a bit about uh, bail reform. 
uh, you guys are doing quite a bit of work on this. And you had um, the, the meeting there with the premiers in Winnipeg. And I don't think I've talked to you since then. Um, I was kind of wondering how, uh, how that went. And then um, maybe we'll talk a bit about uh, Bill C-48, which comes into effect today. So uh, how did that meeting go with the premiers? And uh, any any wild or crazy ideas while you were there that people were kind of throwing out there? No, actually, uh, I was, uh, so it was the Council of Federations, their semi-annual meeting where all the premiers get together and they talk about policy and strategy and how they can unite, like great stuff. So we we put on a, uh, uh, basically a, a breakfast discussion forum, uh, one of the mornings where they can come in, have breakfast, listen to um, a discussion on bail reform. And before that, so obviously C48 was still going through the legislative processes. Um, and, you know, it was a result of all the premiers and the CPA, uh, a number of uh, police associations uh, writing to the Minister of Public Safety and the federal government to do something about bail reform because we were going through a spate of police officer killings. Some were yeah. killing while those assailants were out on bail or facing other charges. And, and stuff. so it was a very public year um about the challenges in the bail system in Canada that led to C48 great that's a start that led to us doing uh our research so we hired a criminologist as well as a former crown and current defense counsel who's worked in a number of jurisdictions to look into and see what recommendations could be made um to the premiers because as you know Nathan um bail in Canada is governed by the criminal code yeah. Right. But it's administered by the province. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we Dennis arrests me on domestic violence charges. I don't go before a federal court judge. I go before a provincial court judge. And that provincial court judge is going to make decisions based on the provincial Crown Council's policy manual, based on how they present their case, uh, based on, you know, the uh, the uh, primary, secondary and tertiary interpretations based on that, based on the number of positions, seats available or beds available in a provincial pretrial custody uh, place and all those things. So our presentation in Winnipeg to these premiers was, hey, the federal government C-48 is a start. But you guys all have a responsibility here because provincially you got you administer bail. Yeah. Uh, so the number of crowns that you have, the number of um, um, legal aid lawyers that you have, the number of uh, spots available in penitentiaries or pretrial facilities you have is all your responsibility, right? You can't just make this political about David Lavetti at the time or now I can't remember the new attorney general. Uh, and and it's not all federal responsibility. So it went well. You know, we had uh, six premiers in the room. We had two uh, senators. We had two um, uh, ministers of justice from different provinces. You know, so I think it was uh, well received. And there's been a lot of follow-up uh, interest on the position paper. We did, we did. We did a lot of lobbying too this fall uh, at Parliament uh, with a lot of uh, the ministers as well. And uh, to Brian's point, it was well received by everybody that uh, I met and every every one of our other directors. Uh, it's uh, you know, effectively, for lack of other terms, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. But it does take uh, certain, uh, I guess, unification or uh, joint effort, not just by the feds, but by each province as well, to ensure that it's followed and properly supported and resourced, that's everything else, uh, to ensure that uh, it's, 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 uh, it, it, the end goal is achieved. Yeah. If, if, if it's not, you're just, you, just, you just put words to paper that are not going to be necessarily uh, utilized uh, in a positive manner in province a versus province b well and i think that's um you, you bring up a good point about like everybody working together i think that's a huge thing that appears to be lacking if you watch kind of mainstream media stuff it it always looks like everyone's so divisive especially between the parties but on these issues in particular um we see conservative governments uh, uh ndp governments like right across provinces and then the feds coming together to say like, okay, 
we see that this, you know, there's been a lot of stuff not working. We need to fix this. Um, so that that was very much appreciated. Uh, do you find when you're in the, the room there, and maybe not so much with ministers of justice, but with like the premiers, are they pretty in tune with the issues that police are facing? in dealing with like the repeat violent offenders um, and the violence itself, are they kind of they up, up to date on that? Or, are they, or is it like a lot of shocked looks around the room? Uh, yes, I'll say, I'll answer that as yes and no. Hmm. Um, so for example, you know, I, I think it was Premier Smith or it might've been then Premier Stephenson. Um, so for example, you know, they're very aware about the repeat violent offenders that are local, i.e., um, you know, person X commits this assault, is um, released on bail, and then the next day in the same community or the neighboring community commits another assault, right, or commits a murder. So that local stuff is hyper-local, whether it's provincial or But what they weren't aware of, and this is one of the recommendations that we made, is, you know, for example, I can go and do an armed robbery in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. get arrested, go before a JP the next morning and get released on some serious conditions, and then steal a car and drive to Regina and commit another armed robbery and maybe kill someone, and then go before a JP. And perhaps the information from the Winnipeg offense. Yeah is not in a database that is easily shareable to the Crown Council in Regina. So I might go up against a JP in Regina and they see that there's no prior offense. I'm not going to tell them I'm facing charges in Winnipeg, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, it's really up to the state to prove. And then I could get released again. And then I drive to Medicine Hat and I commit another robbery. So I'm, that's where the premiers were, were sitting back and saying, holy crap, we're in Canada and we don't have the capacity to share information amongst crown councils quickly. And, you know, and, and um, so that's what, what, why I say 50-50. You know, if I did the robbery in Winnipeg and then in Brandon, they'd be very aware of that. But if I go Winnipeg to a provincial, uh, a different city, a different province, then maybe they're not so much aware of it. Right, yeah. and they weren't aware that the systems were failing us. I think I think that that's, that's, it's a perfect example of transient crime that uh, you know uh, faces us, uh, and I'm sure in Edmonton you have the same thing. You know, your local communities that are patrolled by RCMP out there, uh, they either travel into the city to commit crime, or you have individuals from the city traveling out to commit crime. Yeah, and sometimes uh, as as efficient as the data system might be, or that the data is being shared or uploaded, it, it's not always getting there quick enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, to Brian's point, you're just not having that share and information happening quick enough so that when that secondary or the third crime ends up happening, it ensures that that individual is being detained and kept in, in jail for an extended period of time to answer to all the charges. Of just that singular charge in that area. Well, and one of the things I'll pick up on that even is um, we just saw this the other night when we we're uh, running somebody, and the I, I, I understand when, like, if somebody gets a ticket in one province, that might not carry over to another province where, okay, you're going to enforce it. But we have people that literally have warrants on the system for major criminal offenses in Ontario, say. And then all of a sudden I stop them in Alberta and technically you can arrest them. But what they've done now is start putting out uh, things on there saying like radius only within this province or something. And and to me, it's like, okay, if I got somebody who has a warrant and isn't going back to answer for that, and it could be for like ag assaults, robberies, firearm offenses, just because they're in Alberta, I'm just like, oh, well, see you later, bud. And they just get to drive around and do whatever they were doing. Like, but it's criminal. It's like, why aren't we holding them accountable? If I found them, province is over. Just because they, you know, I get they don't want to ship somebody back and it's going to cost money. But can we not have a system in place where, okay, even though you were caught two provinces over, we're going to deal with you here or, or something? I, I, I hate to say it, but I think it was Ralph Klein who did the, uh, 
uh, everybody gets a Greyhound ticket to uh, to <laughs> Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but also you know in 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 Vancouver, it used to frustrate us you know, to, uh, to no end. Is that yeah, not returnable? Uh, might be an endorser, uh, unendorsed warrant, and your Toronto police put it on there for. Uh, I don't know ag assault, and you call up. They send a CPIC to Toronto and say, "Yeah, no, we're not, we're not supporting this." And it's like, "Thank you very much." And off you go. VPD, mm-hmm. uh, um, you'd have to, you know, talk to them for more clarity. But I know Vancouver Police a number of years ago they did a con air program, basically where uh, you know they rounded up a whole bunch of folks with those unendorsed or even endorsed forms from different jurisdictions, all on a plane. And they flew them back hmm. to Toronto and let them off and said, here you go. I don't care if you want them or not, but we don't want them. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I think that's something that communities uh, are unaware of is that, you know, the... A hundred percent. Yeah, the jurisdiction where the warrant is issued is the one that decides whether or not we're going to fund this person coming back to us. And in the end, if you're a resident of Peel Region, um, and the guy has fled to Lethbridge, Alberta for a windier climate. Um, does Peel Region want to spend the money to bring in a, a someone who's on parole or someone who's on uh, bail waiting charges back? Probably not. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember uh, specifically there was one person we, we would deal with. They had uh, criminal warrants out of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and B.C., and then they're in Alberta. And I was like, you're running out of provinces, man. I don't know where you're going to go next. We're going to find you doing something here, though. And it's just like, how the hell does this person just get to keep wandering around? So, um, no, I was always find it interesting, the insight of just kind of the issues that people are aware of. When you get to these different levels of the politics, even within our own service, um, you know, you play the telephone game between the frontline constable and Somewhere in management, uh, the messaging can change a whole lot depending on what people want to put forward or what pet projects people might have or, or even promotion time. Um, but um, yeah, one of the things I found that was actually useful on our end for the gang suppression work was getting city councilor out with us. I had the chief of police came out uh, and one of the city councilors came out and actually saw what we do. And we explain the whole gambit of things that we do in one night. And um, uh, to this day, he still says, like, uh, the counselor, he's like, I-, I couldn't believe, like, the stuff you deal with. You're, you're dealing with, um, had him, you know, info on some guys from Calgary up here that were looking to do a hit on somebody. So we found one of them, find a gun in a car with a bunch of drugs. And then the next thing we're doing, we're inside a venue and we're kicking somebody out. And it just seems so minor, but they're like, Jesus, like you, you do this and then you're over here and you're up here and then you're down there. And like, yeah, that's, that's like, that's one shift. <laughs> so I got, you know, three more in the week to do. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of them don't recognize the, the level of responsibility and response that we have in a lot of things. And that is the perfect example of what to do. And I did the exact same thing back when I was in New Brunswick taking counselors out on what we called ride-alongs back then yeah, so that they could witness that. And, you know, um, I'll make a little bit of, I guess, off-the-cuff comment in the sense that it's, it's quite often that you see the politicians recommending what we should be doing for training and the lawyers and the judges. Uh, I would recommend that part of their training should be to go out on patrol to see what we're doing on their behalf, yes. under their guides, under their guidance and direction. So that they have a better understanding of what's required of their officers that are out on the road providing safety to communities. Well, again, they they set the policy, they set the laws. Yep. Right, and and I can only force the laws that they created. So, you know, if you don't want the police, again, want the police doing something, then take that law away or make a change or whatever you need to do. Um, yeah, no, I think that's really good. I would uh, highly recommend it anybody listening to this. Like go to your local counselors, uh, your mayor, whoever it might be, and get them out, get them seeing what you're seeing, because that, that's the only way that everyone's going to maybe be on the same page. You kind of have the a lot of these discussions from starting from the same point, at least some 
basis for it. Uh, just as we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here, I just want to give you a chance to say, is there any stuff in the works, any new projects that the NPF has going on? I know you said you're in the middle of bargaining right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, we're, uh, we've been in bargaining for uh, a little over a year, uh, just not quite uh, a little over, yeah, a little over, I, I guess, the contract expired March 31st last year, or April 1st, so we're we're coming into the short strokes, uh, we obviously looking to get the best deal for our members, and where that goes. Um, what else we got going on, um, just kind of stuff? I know you got the book out right now, which people can get too. Did you, did you get a copy of the book yet? Did we send you one? No, I didn't. I no, no. I'll I'll end up buying one. But I uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll put up a link when we do this after when I get up the episode description. Amazon bestseller, actually, uh, the widely served book. Uh, it's also Gold Mail and seller. But uh, so we're still in. It's uh, still the RCMP's 150th anniversary uh, until the end of May of 2024. Started last year, so. Here. What we chose to do is we chose to publish a book. So we got 150 member stories currently serving members uh, in here to talk about what they've done, how they've been, their experience in the RCMP initiatives, great investigations, all great stuff. Uh, really good book, um, and it's gotten fantastic reviews. We're coming into, and we'll, this year, I think what we'll, uh, I have to give a credit to uh, Senator Busson, who was in the uh, First troop of women in the RCMP in 1974. Mm. This is the 50th anniversary of women in the RCMP. So we're trying to figure out what that looks like and how we can celebrate that and how we can uh, advocate for more women uh, and more diversity within the RCMP. Uh, I'm not sure what the RCMP is doing there. I haven't talked to the commissioner about it yet, but uh, I have talked to Senator Busson, and you know some plans are in the works there for her troop and and how we can do that. Um, and well, I mean, our board is up for re-election this year, so everybody's going to okay. be going into campaign mode in a couple of months. <laughs> uh, and and we'll see what that looks like throughout uh, the spring. Um, and uh, yeah, just a lot of stuff going. Yes. Yeah. No, just uh, continuing again. Uh, you know, uh, we've alluded to this. We're still uh, new at the game, only starting in 2020, and still working on building areas uh, to, to serve our members and ensure that uh, they have the proper representation and voice before our decision makers, whether they be internal to the RCMP or whether they be external to different government and agencies uh, to enhance their ability to do the job from day to day. Uh, do you, and maybe one last question for you. Do you get, um, for the size of the membership that you have, you get a lot of engagement or i mean you could always use more but are you finding good numbers of people reaching out or coming to have agms and different things so sorry engagement from our own membership yes yes actually i think we have uh, we're trying to maintain it um we've had some fantastic engagement like we do uh, we've modified and updated and continue to toy and tinker with how we communicate with our members uh, you know, we do. A, we've got a 24/7 phone number. We've got an entire member services team that that uh, answers emails and, and can assign different inquiries and stuff. Uh, they answer about 20,000 inquiries a year. Wow! So for a membership size of almost, you know, almost 20,000, it's like one per member per per year. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, the stuff that we communicate, whether it's via email, via social media, you know, Twitter, or X, or Instagram, whatever, there's actually uh, some pretty high engagement from our memberships. Like almost, I think our average is about uh, close to seven out of ten open every email we get that we send out. Right, so okay. pretty good engagement. Um, you know, our local area reps, uh, who are the boots on the ground, you know, kind of our shop stewards. They're fantastic advocates for what the NPF is doing and communicating stuff in their their particular districts and their region. Um, good champions for for uh, the NPF and definitely one of the reasons we've got good engagement. Um, and then you know for our AGM we operate on a delegate system, so every slate has been full since we've been uh, certified. About and there's almost been uh, an election in just about 
every uh, voting delegate session. Um, so I think I think we're uh, on a good footing with respect to engagement from our members. Uh, and part of that is probably because um, we're still a little new, know that. Um, and, and, you know, members are still testing us and still curious about us. Hopefully Dennis gets a really good second contract (laughs) and a lot of the doubt will be real projects. Yeah. Well, and I would recommend people, you know, if you have a question, never, uh, hesitate to reach out to your association or respective association or the federation. Um, because that's one thing I found doing the association work for the last two years was, a lot of people have questions, but they won't ask you till they just kind of bump into you in a hallway somewhere. They're like, call, email anytime. Like, uh, you know, we'll we'll help you out. So um, maybe uh, if you guys just uh, tell people where they can follow your work. So if you got any sp- specific uh, Twitter handles or Instagram or wherever they can find you best. Dennis, are you on? Dennis is on all of these. I'm, I'm I personally, I mean, I am on Twitter or X. I think it's at Brian or Brian underscore. Um, you know, um, I'm, I don't use Instagram or Facebook, but you know, the NPF itself is where most of our stuff is published and, uh, uh, they can find it all at NPF-FPN.com. All of our social media tags are, are there. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I'll say thanks for coming on today, guys. Uh, hang on line for a second. I'll say bye offline, but uh, really appreciate this. And uh, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nathan. Keep up the good work.